Good afternoon. At least it's a good afternoon here in Winchester, Kentucky. Welcome to the Humble Perspectives podcast with your host, Steve Humble. Back in 2017, when I finished writing chapter 24 of my book, For Such a Time as This, which the chapter that I read last week, I emailed several friends to announce with elation that I had finished the first draft of the manuscript of the book. When I'd started the manuscript, probably in 1998, I'd only intended to tell the story up to the point of my initial journey through loss and grief. However, two or three days later, I awoke to the pressing thought, the book is not complete. You need to tell the rest of the story. There was such a sense of urgency with this thought that after eating breakfast, I started to write again, even though I had I thought the book was already too long. So after writing the second, the second final three chapters, or writing the final three chapters the second time, if you would, could say it that way, I knew I had done the right thing. Whatever anyone else might gain from those chapters, I gained. A few themes that had been running through the book came together more clearly in my own understanding about the way God had been working in my life. Of these, the theme of fatherhood has probably had the most deep, deep impact on me. With that, I will now read chapter 25, Walking in that Lonesome Valley. Elijah's death was a devastating loss for Jenny, for our immediate family, for our extended family, for our spiritual family, and for Elijah's friends. Each member of our family has a unique story about the immediate days following Elijah's death. I can share only mine. On July 28, I wrote this in my account of those days. One thing that has happened is that Stephanie, Andrea, Patricia, and I have in many ways grieved separately. The girls especially got very tired of all the people and the endless rounds of weeping. Eventually, they more or less withdrew to the living room and their bedrooms, each with one or two friends. I don't know if this is good or bad. It happened. It's left Patricia and me with a concern for whether or not they have processed their grief fully enough. We've had a special concern for Stephanie, but we keep talking with her about it, and she seems to be doing all right. We're aware that, to some degree, we've not had the time to grieve as a family unit. I don't know if we can schedule it or whether it will happen naturally as the next few months pass. We are aware of some probable tender moments ahead. August 12th, Elijah and Jenny's anniversary. September 3rd, Jenny's 25th birthday. October 10th, Patricia's birthday. November 6th, Elijah's birthday. November 28th, Thanksgiving with several of Patricia's family. December 25th. Christmas with my family. Well, I did, that's the end of what I had in my journal at that point. While I did not know how to evaluate the fact that we grieved separately at the time, as stated above, I was tending to see it as the girls pulling away from all the activity and people. In hindsight, however, Patricia and I have come to the conviction that we failed by not carving out time for our family to be alone and to process things together. Had we known better, we would have set aside times and places for that 
soon after Elijah's death. Yes, each of the girls had their own friends with whom they shared their loss. But as parents, we should have taken responsibility to pull the family together. But we were caught up in our own grief and caught up in greeting and visiting with our extended family and friends. I don't say that with self-condemnation, for we did the best we knew at the time. Amazingly, the sense of excitement, peace, and joy, the euphoria that I experienced during the visitation and funeral continued to a great degree for two or three days. Certainly there were times of weeping, but hope prevailed in me for those few days. I remember going to the cemetery with a folding camp chair early in the morning on several days immediately following the burial so that I could sit facing east by Elijah's grave with my chair placed near his head. I had read somewhere that it was an old tradition to bury people with their feet plant, pointed toward the east so that in the resurrection they would rise facing east, from which direction it was believed Jesus would come. Although we had not purchased the grave site with that in mind, Elijah's grave lies that way. On those hot July mornings, the haze was thick to the east of us, and sunlight seemed to be coming through a veil. The lit up haze seemed like a veil on the other side of which things were brighter and more real than on this side. It seemed as though I could simply reach out, part the veil, and slip on through into the world to come. Those seemingly mystical experiences did not last long. Even those few days included plenty of times of deep weeping, pain, and loneliness. Within four or five days after the funeral, the numbness I had often felt in the previous days was replaced with a gut-sick ache most of the time. On July 27th, I wrote, This week, July 21 to 27, has been one of the toughest. There were tears and sobs the first weekend, but there was also the numbness and the incredulity. And in the midst of the crisis, faith came easily and God seemed to pour out his grace on us. We were surrounded by people and there were decisions to be made. Now that kind of activity has ended. Life is returning to normal. But what is normal? Our son is gone from us. Jenny is trying to make their house into her house. Stephanie and Andrea no longer have a big brother to whom they can look and with whom they can talk. And I'm the only male in this immediate family now. Home for me changed a lot when Elijah went to school and then got married. A household of women is different than a mixed house. I love my wife. I love my girls. We have good relationships, I think. But that's a whole different thing than having male companionships. Not a bad thing. Not a lesser thing. But a completely different thing. Now I can no longer look forward to being with Elijah on Sunday or holidays or other special occasions. I cannot call and hear him on the phone. I cannot share my interest in music with him. There is no one here who's interested in what I think about or read about. Most of my interests are either boring or threatening to my female family members. Life has lost a lot of color for me. End of that entry. My journal entries witness to the fact that I kept turning to that simple directive that I received at the emergency room on the night of Elijah's death. Trust God, entrust Elijah to God, and then take a posture of worship. Some of the things I wrote now seem to indicate 
that I was trying to make a stand on biblical truth and theological concepts. That's not all bad, of course, but I soon discovered that grief must be acknowledged and dealt with. At the risk of sounding morbid or hung up on Elijah's death, I'm going to write about some of my experience and about what I learned while walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It is, after all, a part of my spiritual journey. On the Saturday evening following the funeral, Patricia and I went to the basement to set up chairs and get the room ready for Winchester Covenant's worship gathering. Bruce and Kathy, our neighbors, came over just in time to help out. As we worked, Bruce, who's a member of our church, Patricia and I were and Pat Patricia and I were talking about Elijah and about the funeral. The conversation focused on faith and hope in the presence of God. Kathy was a faithful member of a, another church, but she did not at the time profess a personal relationship to Jesus, although in more recent years her growth has been wonderful to see. During that conversation, she held her tongue for a while and then burst out. Well, I think Elijah's death was shitty. Without thought, I responded, Kathy, you're right. Elijah's death is the shittiest thing that's ever happened to me. The only difference is that I believe God turns shit into good things. The shock and pain and loss of that first week was indeed bad. It, it was shitty, if you will. Still, though I thought I knew something about grief, I was yet to learn how much the grace of God had carried me through to that point. Later, I would think that it had been almost as if God had given me a dose of anesthetic that made the pain somewhat bearable for a while. But anesthesia wears off, and the long journey through deep muck had only just begun. God never left me, I know. Grace was always there, though I often could not feel it. And there were times when my choices revealed that I had refused it. Grace held me when I could not hold myself. I don't believe that God was at work doing I do believe that God was at work doing good, although even today I still don't have the full picture of his good purpose in it all. In mid-July, Jenny brought us copies of Elijah's medical records from the clinic where he'd been seen and the EKGs that had been made. Reading through them was difficult. A few weeks after Elijah's death, I took copies of those test results and the records of those visits to our former family doctor, Dr. Wayne Marlowe, a good friend from Lexington Covenant. After looking at the documentation closely, Dr. Marlowe told me that he would have almost certainly come to the same conclusion, that the abnormality that appeared on the EKG seemed to be normal for Elijah. That assessment helped me greatly freeing me from the concern that human error might have kept Elijah from receiving treatment that might have saved his life. By August of 1996, I was experiencing depression more and more often. I would have to fight to turn to God and fight to take hope. I remember a day in early August when my daily scripture reading included, Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, James 4.8. That directive and promise stood out as if printed in bold relief. I recognized that this exhortation was a personal encouragement to me, and some part of me received it with gratitude. Yet I also found myself struggling with this word, draw near to God. 
come up close to the very one who could have allowed our son to live and could have spared us from this pain? Sometimes I obeyed. Sometimes I gave in to the depression. Either way, there was pain. However, I found that giving in to the depression usually led to seeking an escape, which led me into temptation and then often into sin. The consequence of sin was worse pain, destructive pain. When I obeyed and sought to turn to God, that also hurt because he could have kept Elijah alive. However, when I continued setting my mind on the Lord and remembering his works of grace and mercy and his promise that everything would work for the good, although there was pain, I began to realize that it was productive pain. From the first, I was never angry with God, not in any form of active conscious anger anyway. I struggled with why he had allowed this tragedy to befall us, but I didn't accuse him or curse him or rail at him. I began to realize over time, though, that much of the depression I was dealing with was actually anger toward it, turned inward. Rather than fighting, fighting outwardly against God, I was struggling not to shut him off from within and simply give in to passivity. That battle was difficult. But as time went by, healing slowly, oh so slowly, began to come, and my trust in God began to grow a bit at a time. Once I did cry out a question to God, Why, my son? I had driven Stephanie to her job at Clark Rural Electric one morning later that August. On the way home, I turned left from Wynn Avenue onto Main Street near downtown Winchester. As I crossed the railroad track, I yelled, Why, my son? With no expectation of an answer. But God spoke. It wasn't audible. But it was clear, even the tone was clear, firm, fatherly, and filled with tender love. Why not, your son? Yes, why not, my son, I thought. We live in a broken world filled with broken lives and broken families. Why should I be spared from sharing in the pain that so many of us face in life? Isn't that what my master did? He came among us, became one of us in order to embrace and bear in himself the agony of our brokenness so that we by grace may share the glorious love and community of his life with the Father and the Spirit. Why should I be spared? I worshiped and that morning was filled with gratitude that I could follow Jesus by embracing this cross in my life. Still, the pain of grief was intense, although it gradually, oh so gradually subsided after a time, there was the sense of loss and the disorientation. Sorry, my voice got weird. I had to pause to get a drink, clear out my throat, and maybe deal with some of the feelings that get stirred up. The last sentence again. Although the intense grief gradually, oh so gradually, subsided. There was still the loss of, sense of loss and the disorientation. The gut-wrenching pain began to hit me more infrequently. The insidious thing was that the hard, agonizing moments of pain would hit, and I do mean hit, at unexpected and unpredictable moments. Even now, 
More than 20 years later, those moments of pain will come, but not with the same intense agony. Special days were especially hard that first year. Actually, the dread that has always built up for a week or two leading up to the special days was the worst part. Usually, the actual days were redeemed by time with the family. Soon after the funeral, my sister Debbie, who worked for a funeral home in Waverly, Ohio, had given us some material about dealing with grief that her employers had gathered. One simple suggestion we found to help immensely. Patricia began to purchase a candle for those special days, particularly when the family gathered for meals. At the beginning of the meal, we would light the candle in honor of Elijah's memory. Afterward, we often shared some other memories, and then having acknowledged our son in the loss, it was much easier to go ahead with the meal and be more fully present to one another. It was not unusual for my mind to just slip away from the present moment either to a memory of Elijah or to a fresh wave of sorrow and pains. Many times it happened right in the middle of a conversation. Even when I was the speaker, I would start a sentence and just drift off. It also happened when I was driving, and several times I simply drove through a red light or a stop sign without awareness. Thankfully, I didn't cause any accidents. My perspective on Psalm 23 changed dramatically in this season also. Always before, when I read about walking with the shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death, I had pictured the shepherd comforting and protecting the person, the person dying. I'm sure that's true, although in Elijah's case, the time when he was aware of walking in that valley, if he ever was at all, was very short. It was we who loved Elijah who were left in the shadow of his passing and who needed the shepherd's faithful care and comfort so badly for a long time, and the Lord has indeed been our faithful shepherd. In contrast, just a few years later it became clear to our family that my mother had Alzheimer's disease. Her mind was, quote, dying, unquote, long before her body died. Both she and her family were walking in the shadow of death for at least 10 years before she died. Mom died of a heart attack in November 2008, by God's mercy we believe or her journey in the Valley of Shadow could have been several years longer. Dad, however, not only walked with her on the journey to her death, but also was left in the Valley of Shadow when she had gone into the world to come. He continued to walk in the shadow of her passing for five years until he too died in August 2014. The shepherd was faithful to see them both through. Based upon my own experience and upon my observation of the experience of others, I've come to the conclusion that there is no right way to deal with grief. There are ways of dealing with grief that are helpful and other ways that are not helpful, perhaps even harmful. Still, everyone has to find his or her own path through the valley of the shadow of death. As bluesman Mississippi John Hurt put it, you got to walk that lonesome valley. You got to walk it for yourself. It helped me greatly to share with others who were also in that valley. It was also very helpful to receive encouragement for people who had already been through it. But each journey is unique, but the Good Shepherd is faithful and will always be there to guide and guard those who look to Him. We were blessed to have people who encouraged us. I usually didn't find 
that the words people said to us were that helpful. Frankly, most of the standard lines people utter in a time of loss I found were not helpful at all. It was sometimes hard not to react to some of them, but I did realize that people wanted to be helpful. The best words it seemed to me were simple ones like, I'm so sorry. If the relationship was close enough, sharing a hug and even tears helped soothe the pain. The biggest help was for people to simply be there. Often, the fewer words, the better, it seemed. Some simple things helped immeasurably, especially in that long, lonely days, the long, lonely days that followed the funeral. My brothers in ministry, such as John Meadows, Dennis Cole, and Bill Livingston, touched base often, usually with a phone call or an email. For several weeks, a Mitch, a brother in our church, would stop by two or three, three times each evening on his way home from work. Sometimes we'd have a cold drink together. Usually he would just stay a few minutes, long enough to see if I wanted to talk, and that was long enough for me to know that I was not alone. Darren, another friend from the church, understood how much Elijah and I had loved to listen to music and talk about it together. So he came over several times in the next months, months just to listen to music with me. My wife was wonderfully encouraged when our friend Billy Henderson came from Lexington one day just to plant a little herb garden outside her kitchen door. Dennis Cole's son, Jeremiah, who was a little younger than Elijah, asked to spend several hours with me one day just to have me share about my relationship with my son. Brent, Gary, and Mitch, who all traveled around Kentucky doing sales and service for Bluegrass Kesco, a water treatment firm, each invited me to ride with them for a day, getting me out of the house and providing me with meaningful companionship during the first months of grief. Our good friends Dan and Faye Smithwick, from whom we had been estranged for several years, but with whom we had been reconciled in 1995, were faithful to visit. Phone calls and emails, no text messaging in those days, from friends and family who lived in other places communicated love and concern. One such friend, Jim Zielinski, who lives in central Ohio to this day, calls sometime around July 4th and often on other holidays just to say that he remembers Elijah and cares about us. A few others sent cards of remembrance on the 4th for years afterward. In early November 1996, my brother Wes came down from central Ohio in order to go with me to a Bela Fleck concert as a way to remember Elijah on the first birthday after his death. The previous January, Wes and Elijah had discovered a common interest in Bela Fleck's music. I hadn't been familiar with his music, but doing something with my brother that Elijah would have loved meant the world. The music Bela and his friends made was outstanding too. Speak of mu uh, speaking of music, before Elijah died, our da daughter Stephanie had purchased tickets to an Emmy Lou concert scheduled in mid-August as an anniversary present for us. She was almost apologetic to give us those tickets to do something fun on our anniversary only two days after her brother's funeral. But we went to the concert. Two couples from the Fellowship of Believers, Stephanie's Church, were also going and they offered us a ride with them, a simple kind act that showed care and may well have encouraged us to step out and actually do something. The Kentucky Theater concert venue is small and intimate. There are no bad seats, but our seats were great. On the eighth row, right on the outside wall to the right of the stage, 
Although it was not a distraction, it was notable that several people, all dressed in dark clothes, came up the aisle and stood along that while once the music started. A few songs into the concert, Emmy Lou began to sing plaintively, When I go, don't cry for me, in my father's arms I'll be. The wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and I'll be whole. Sun and moon will be replaced with light of Jesus' face, and I will not be ashamed, for my Savior knows my name. It don't matter where you bury me, I'll be home and I'll be free. It don't matter where I lay, all my tears be washed away. A knot, not a lump, formed in my throat. I looked at Patricia and saw her crying softly. I put my right arm around her and she leaned against my shoulder. One of the people leaning against the wall noticed she came over to us, leaned down, and gently asked, Is everything all right? Is there anything I can do? When we assured her that we were okay, she went back to her place. A few songs later, in her most wistful voice, Emmy Lou began, See what you lost when you left this world, this sweet old world. See what you lost when you left this world, this sweet old world. Again, the knot, the tears, the hug. And again the woman noticed and came over and asked, Are you sure you're all right? Our son died last month. I replied this time, We're a little tender these days, and these songs touch the tenderness. Emmy Lou's father died a couple years ago. I think that's why she sings these songs, the woman said. Later, Emmy Lou took a break backstage while Buddy Miller and the rest of Emmy Lou's spy boy band sang and played. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that the woman who had been concerned about us also went backstage. A few minutes later, she returned and came over to us. Leaning down, she said quietly, This is the next to the last concert of a world tour for Emmy Lou. She's quite tired and not receiving guests backstage, but I told her about you and your loss. She asked me to invite you to come back and meet her if you want. With a little reluctance, because I never know what to say to celebrities, after consulting briefly with Patricia, we accepted the kind invitation. Immediately following the concert, our angel in black came and escorted us backstage, where we saw a few others were waiting also. But she took us to the head of the line. Emmy Lou, seated behind a table in which there was a large fruit tray, was talking with a man whom our escort told us was a reporter. While Emmy Lou was being interviewed, our new friend told us her story of being a longtime fan and how she had become friends with Emmy Lou. Before long, we were standing in front of the table. For me, it was as awkward as I thought it would be. But Emmy Lou asked a few questions about our son and expressed her condolences. She signed our programs and we left. The simple concern of a stranger and the kindness of a well-known but weary musician were balm in our time of sorrow. Before I go on, I just want to mention that the first song, When I Cry, Don't, When I Go, Don't Cry For Me, It Don't Matter Where You Bury Me, is by Julie Miller. And uh, I discovered later that she wrote the song to commemorate the death of Christian musician Mark Hurd, whose music Elijah had appreciated. Ironically, he had died, Mark had died from a heart attack in 1992 at the age of 40. 
Sweet Old World was written by Lucinda Williams. But Emmy Lou's versions are tremendous. Soon after Elijah died, I realized that I was measuring time by his death. Things either happened before Elijah died or after Elijah died. The event had become the central event of life in that season. A year later, about three weeks after July 4th, I realized that I was no longer measuring time that way. Elijah's death was starting to take its proper place in the timeline of my life. Soon afterward, I told Patricia about this change, and to my amazement, she said her experience had been very similar. Perhaps the agonizing grief had something to do with the season of physical difficulties we began to face. Just a few weeks after the funeral, while Patricia was doing something in the flower garden outside our kitchen, she began to experience great difficulty breathing and became deeply concerned that it might be a heart attack. We called for an ambulance and they took her to the hospital. The test did not point to a heart issue. The doctor told us that extreme grief sometimes leads to hyperventilating and to symptoms that can suggest a heart issue. That was not the only time she had that fearful experience, nor was it the only time we went to the emergency room because of it. Although no heart issue was identified during these incidents, there came a time a number of years later when she needed an echocardiogram. After looking at the results, the cardiologist asked, when did you have the heart event? When she said she didn't know of one, he told her that the test had revealed scar tissue from a heart attack, probably a silent one. She may well have had an actual heart attack during the intense period of grief after all. In January 1997, I had the first of several health problems which led to more than a few hospital stays and surgeries and other issues. A season that continued from January 1997 into the early months of, months of 2009. No one needs to read a recital of all those ills, but some were directly related to my spiritual journey. I had experienced some abdominal discomfort for a few days, but by the time I came home from our worship gathering on Sunday, January 19th, 1997, the discomfort had increased. I tried to get relief by using a laxative to no avail. The increasing pain continued into Tuesday when I could no longer deny that I had serious pain, and I yielded to my wife's urging to seek medical help at Clark Regional Medical Center's emergency room. Their test revealed a serious enough issue that I was admitted, and they began pumping my stomach. After more examinations and tests, the diagnosis was Crohn's disease, and a local gastroenterologist was assigned to my case. After two days of treatment with IVs and pills, I was reintroduced gradually to food, beginning with a liquid diet. It appeared that the immediate problem was being dealt with, and it was time for me to learn how to live with Crohn's. On Friday evening, I was given my first meal of solid food and the plan was to send me home on Saturday. All I remember about that meal was that it included cooked carrots. My wife and all visitors left about 8.30 p.m. that Friday evening, and I was preparing to get a good night's sleep, one without IVs and periodic interruptions for blood pressure tests and the other things that nurses do to keep waking a patient up over and over through the night. At 9 p.m., though, pain started, and then increased, 
and increased. The point came when I thought I couldn't stand any more. So I asked for pain medication and the nurse gave me morphine. It didn't even seem to help. I had no roommate that night, so I paced the floor. Several times I even bumped my head against the wall, hoping, I guess, that the pain in my head might help me not feel the pain in my belly. That didn't help. I walked the halls, anything to try to distract myself from the pain. I had to wait two hours for more pain medicine. When I did, the nurses offered to call the on-call doctor. I refused because of some misguided notion that I didn't want to disturb a doctor's sleep. By morning, I was desperate, and at 6 a.m. I asked for a doctor. To my surprise, the on-call doctor was Dr. Bill Greiser, the same surgeon who had tried to save Elijah. Dr. Greiser gave me another kind of pain medicine in addition to the morphine that I'd already been taking. From that point on, through the day, I was drowsy and my memory is fuzzy. I do remember having several different tests, but the details that I don't remember, that I do remember, are not ones I care to tell. At about 5 p.m. after a CT scan, I think, Dr. Grazer came in to the conclusion that there was infection in the small bowel and that he had to do an emergency surgery to remove that section. I was taken into surgery at 5.30 on Saturday evening. I awoke to the news that 18 inches of my small colon had been removed and that a, an abdominal hernia had been repaired, but without using mesh because a substance foreign to my body would likely cause infection. My parents stopped by the medical center to visit on Sunday morning on their way from Circleville to some church where Dad was scheduled to preach. While they were visiting, I was sitting in a chair when the fluid began to leak from the incision. I had no idea about the implications of this leak, but soon was told that the leaking part of the incision would have to be left open and cleaned carefully twice daily, and that the healing would need to be from the inside out. This meant that Patricia would need to clean the wound twice a day and that I would be restricted in activity for at least two months. Dr. Greiser and the other doctors were still thinking that the infection was related to Crohn's disease and the plan was to deal with that by a changed diet and medication. According to normal procedure, however, the diseased tissue removed by surgery was sent for lab analysis. To the doctor's surprise, the results determined that the issue was not Crohn's, but rather a part of my small bowel had died because of an ischemia, that is a lack of blood supply to that part of the colon. Why? Nobody knew. There was no way to find out. The doctor's best guess was that I might have been infected by E. coli bacteria, but there was no way to prove or disprove it. A few years later, my friend Gary Gerwell told me in a letter that intestinal issues could be related to grief. I've never seen research that shows such a link between them. However, my wife and daughters have expressed their belief that my intestinal problem was related to the way I grieve. There is, of course, no way to know whether or not it was the stress of grieving for Elijah that weakened my system and led to that intestinal issue. I do know that for many years, in times of great stress, I seem to have problems in my digestive system. What is clear to me, however, is that the complications of the ischemia, if untreated, could have caused my death. Elijah had died at age 23. 
But for some reason, rather than die at age 47, I was going to live a little longer. Why? I couldn't answer the question. But I could affirm, reaffirm my commitment to do what I could to serve young people as Elijah and I had wanted to do. I had prayed that at the time of his death that somehow, in some way, his death would impact many, many others who would have been reached than had he lived. God had now spared my life. Now it was my time to offer the life I had been given to God for him to use in reaching people, especially young people. Thus, when the opportunity arose not long afterward, I began to teach at Lexington Christian Fellowship's Mars Hill Homeschool Co-op. The first year, I taught two English classes. The next year, I began to teach a biblical worldview class for seniors, and for nearly a dozen years, I did the best I could to help prepare young Christians go on to college campuses ready to advance the faith among their professors and classmates. I longed to help equip them not simply to survive the assault against the faith that most would face in college, but to serve effectively as representative of God's kingdom in that often hostile environment. As part of my ongoing efforts in that class, in 2000 I read Robert Weber's Ancient Future Faith, Rethinking Evangelicalism for a Postmodern World published by Baker Academic. Because of the worldview class, I read several books that had to do with postmodernity after I discovered that a number of authors were wrestling with how the church could be more affected given the changes in the cultural assumptions and beliefs that had taken place, especially among the younger generation. Weber was one of these authors. Around 1980, not long after we'd begun the Free Church Fellowship, I had read Weber's book, Common Roots, A Call to Evangelical Maturity, first published by Zondervan Publishing House. It's been republished since his death as an e-book under the title Common Roots, The Original Call to an Ancient Future Faith. That book helped me be far more appreciative of the church in the first few centuries after the apostles. It also helped me to be more appreciative of the church traditions to which most of my brothers and sisters and the servants of the Lord were connected. In addition, that book had made me curious to know more about the writings of the church fathers. A primary impact that ancient and future faith had on me came from Weber's emphasis on Christus Victor, Latin for Christ the Victor. It's a way of understanding Christ's atonement, which had been the primary way that Christians had viewed the atonement for the first thousand years of church history. And it's still the view of the Eastern Orthodox churches. This view of Jesus' work on the cross focuses on his triumph over the principalities and powers, over sin, death, and the devil, as the primary accomplishment of the atonement. I began to pursue a better and more complete understanding of the victory that Jesus had won by his death and resurrection. One biblical statement about Christ's victory that had intrigued me for a long time now began to make more sense. Colossians 2, 13-15 And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame 
by triumphing over them in him. In Christ, that is. And that's powerful. A process of change began in me that increasingly has pulled together my previous study and insight and wrestling with spiritual realities such as the gospel and the kingdom of God and the covenant. Because of Weber, I began to see much more clearly that the truths that I, along with many others, had been wrestling to understand and to live were vital foundations for the young people coming along behind us. Weber's book helped to stir me up to pray frequently and fervently, Lord, show me your vision for the church of the next generation. This prayer became a primary cry of my heart over the next few years. It was never far from my consciousness no matter whether I was trying to sell office products, which I did for a few years, or leading the church or teaching at Mars Hill or involved in a conference or reading a book or at any time. Short time after I read Weber's book, my friend Dennis Peacock asked the church elders with whom he had influence to read N.T. Wright's What St. Paul Really Said, a book published by Erdman's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Although I soon recognized that this book was significant, I had no idea who Wright was or what he had already written, let alone the many books he was to write in the years since. I certainly had no idea that Wright's work was to play a major role in expanding and shaping my understanding of the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. While the Lord used Weber's book to open a door for me, Wright's prolific work has helped me to explore the house. One summary passage from Wright's book brought together in a few words truths about the gospel of the kingdom that I'd been wrestling to understand and live and teach for years. Here are Wright's words. My proposal has been that the gospel is not for Paul a message about how one gets saved in an individual and ah-historical sense. The gospel is a fourfold announcement about Jesus. One, in Jesus of Nazareth, specifically in his cross, the decisive victory has been won over the powers of evil, including sin and death themselves. Two, in Jesus' resurrection, the new age has dawned, or you could call it the new creation, inaugurating the long-awaited time when the prophecies would be fulfilled, when Israel's exile would be over, and the whole world would be addressed by one creator God. 3. The crucified and risen Jesus was all along Israel's Messiah, her representative king. 4. Jesus was therefore also the Lord, the true king of the world, the one at whose name every knee would bow. This, I realized, was an excellent summary of the good news Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 14-36 and that he shared reluctantly, it seems, to Gentiles gathered in Centurion Cornelius' home. I had to pause at a odd place because my son-in-law was mowing the yard and didn't realize I was recording and I don't have a soundproof place. So I'm going to start that paragraph all again, all over again. These things that N.T. Wright said that I read, I realized were an excellent summary of the good news Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 14 to 36. The good news that he shared reluctantly, it seems, to Gentiles gathered in Centurion Cornelius' home, 
Acts 13, 34 to 43. Wright's four points also sum up the gospel proclamations that Paul made in the synagogue, Acts 13, 13 to 41, before King Agrippa, Acts 26, 1 to 23, and to pagan philosophers in Athens at Antioch and Perga, Acts 17, 22 to 31. Although in Athens, Paul reframed his message for people unfamiliar with the Jewish scriptures. What's more, it is this understanding of the gospel that underlies the content of the letters, the epistles, which Paul wrote to those who already had believed that message and had been called to live as citizens of that kingdom. A few years later, I read Bright's The Challenge of Jesus, Rediscovering Who Jesus Was and Is, a book published by InterVarsity Press 2000. This book helped me to understand even more clearly that the good news which Paul proclaimed was indeed the same good news that the Old Testament prophets had announced ahead of time, the same good news that John the Baptist called people to prepare for, and the very gospel that Jesus lived, proclaimed, and fulfilled through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The opportunity to teach a biblical worldview class was a godsend for me during that season of grief in part because it helped me focus on something other than grief. More importantly, it also provided a tangible way for me to seek to serve the younger generation. It challenged me to not be overcome and stopped by loss, but rather to keep learning and growing for the sake of others. Well, that's the end of chapter 25. If I'd stopped writing with chapter 24 as I intended, I might well have left the impression to readers that I handled the grief of losing my son with more trust and consistent confidence in God than actually was the case. As I said in the chapter, it wasn't me handling grief so well, but God held on to me by his grace, guarding and guiding me as I stumbled through the dark valley. When I was a kid, we used to love to hear Piper and Cartwright, a singing duo from the hills of southern Ohio. They had many original songs, but one memorable song came to me as I'm finishing this chapter. I'm a gonna cling. You'd have to hear the song to appreciate it. My primary counsel to anyone dealing with great loss is cling. Cling to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with everything you've got. And that won't be enough. But the good news, He will cling to you if you've been joined to Him by faith in Jesus. Blessings to you all.